Hi, this is Brian Lane, lead pastor of FAM Church. This morning's message is our last message in the series, This Means War. If you are a follower of Christ, you are engaged in a war whether you recognize it or not. In week seven, we finish up putting on the uniform, the armor that God gives us to fight on this battlefield. And so let's get ready to step out onto the battlefield. Church, we are in the final morning of our This Means War series. And as we've been doing in our previous message, we've been going backwards in time to look at what we talked about the week before. And before I talk about what we talked about last week, though, uh, wasn't the baptisms last Sunday awesome? I mean, it was just so exciting. So exciting to see what God is doing in people's lives. And, and so it, I just, that was, that was my favorite part of the service. And so let's, but let's review last week's message. And last week we took up one piece of armor and that was the shield of faith. The shield that Paul, the guy who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, was thinking about when he wrote the text was a large shield that the Roman soldiers used and carried into combat. And it, was, it had this nickname called the door because it was as large as a door. It covered the soldier from the top of their head down to their feet. Uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was their primary protection to protect the soldiers from the volley of arrows, flaming arrows, spears, rocks, anything that the enemy would launch from their side of the defenses over to the Romans' side of the army. And the shield of faith that we were called to take up is the same sort of thing. It's designed to protect us from our head down to our toes. The challenge, though, that we saw in this was that this is a shield of faith. And so we had to kind of put a definition around this whole concept of faith. Because for most people, the definition of faith that they would give is they would say it's the opposite of doubt. And that's an okay definition for faith, but I don't think that's really the biblical definition for when you look through the pages and books of the Bible, that's not, I don't think, the picture that it paints in there. And there's one spot in particular in the New Testament that they actually give a definition for faith. And so we turned there, and that was Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And um, what it said there in verse 1, it said, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. And that still left the waters a little bit muddy. And so to clarify it, we actually went through the text of Hebrews chapter 11. And we looked at each and every single story, each and every single situation, each and every single circumstance in that section to see exactly what God was trying to say, what God was trying to show us through this chapter in regards to faith. And what we saw there was that in each of these situations that we read about, in each of these situations that we discussed, the issue that people were having was not so much doubt in what God had said, but a fear that would rise up when they actually followed through with what God was commanding them. We talked about Noah building an ark in his backyard. A hundred years he's building this boat, put ourselves in that same situation. God says build a boat because in a hundred years I'm going to flood the earth. You're building a boat. Neighbors are making fun of you. Friends are making in front of you. Uh, People that drive by are making fun of you. It brings fear. And in all of the other situations, it was the same sort of thing. Fear was the thing that would rise up in anyone facing those situations. And so that is what faith is the opposite of fear. And every single day, fears keep us struggling to maintain our faith, and it's those fears that feed our doubts. 
And so just like the shield that the Roman soldiers carried when they headed out into battle, we have to do something to maintain our shield so that when fears come to directly challenge God, what he's spoken, what he said and wants to do, we have this faith there that's maintained to directly challenge those fears so we can deflect them. But what we also saw is that sometimes, no matter how hard we try to deflect the arrows, sometimes, bottom line, the arrows will just stick into that shield. The Romans carried uh, multiple layers of leather. The shield was made out of animal skin. And, uh, and so our, kinda, our shield of faith is the same thing. But the Romans, what they would do to prevent missiles from coming in, because as we talked about, that leather, that, that animal skin, if a fiery arrow were to hit it, it would start on fire and burn. And so what the Romans did was when they had, headed into battle, they would first take their shield and soak them in water and then head out to the fight. The idea was is that if an arrow came and stuck into their shield, that the wetness of the shield would extinguish the flames, the fire, the smoldering embers that were on this arrow. And the same is true for us in our lives. Our enemy is throwing fiery darts, fiery missiles, flaming arrows at us because he wants to torch our shield of faith. He is hoping that we have not soaked our shield in water so that when an arrow sticks, it will catch fire as soon as it's hit, leaving us open to the other arrows that are flying at us. And so what are we to do? We are to soak our shields. What does that mean? We look through the other books and letters of the Bible, and we saw that on many occasions the presence of the Holy Spirit was actually described as water. And so I concluded from that that in order to maintain our shield and to keep it strong, we needed to, one, saturate ourselves in the presence of the Holy Spirit, which would also soak us and wet our shield to keep our shield strong. And so the question became, how do we do that? How do we soak ourselves? And we looked at there's many ways that we can soak ourselves in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But one of the ways that we talked about is through worship. I mean, we just got done with worship here, and I really hope that you use that time to press into God's presence, to soak in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that it was strengthening that shield in front of you, because that's what it's there for. Worship is not about singing songs to God. As much as it's about us standing and soaking in his presence and allowing his power to speak to us through the words of these songs. Because I mean these words and the songs are our prayers just as much as they are words that we sing. And so we spend our time worshiping God. Another way we accomplish this is spending time in God's word. Then a third way we saw was through prayer. However, the prayer that we were talking about was not a prayer where we go to God, we give him all of our requests, and we say, okay, God, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to me. I'm out. Peace out. Out of here. See you later. Okay? It was a thing where we entered into God's presence, and yes, we let him know what we needed, what was going on in our lives, what was going on in the lives of those around us, but where we stop and we listen. We don't like listening, do we? How many of you have to have a TV on, a radio on, a something on when nobody's at home because it's just too darn quiet in the house? I mean, I'm that way. I mean, I got, listen, I watched, 
I've probably watched every episode of the TV show Ancient Aliens 15 times because on Fridays when everybody's at work in school and I'm at home by myself, I just need some noise going on, okay? But that's the way we are. But in order to really saturate ourselves in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have got to sit still and let God speak to us in our prayer time just as much as we speak to him. And so if you're spending 10 minutes talking to God, spend 10 minutes in silence letting God speak to you. And as you do that, you soak yourself in the presence of God and it puts a covering on your shield. It puts some security, some anointing on your shield to keep it strong so it's able to withstand the fiery arrows of the enemy. And so that was last week. Let's move on to today's message. Finish up Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Last week we got through verses through verse 16. Uh, but to re- refresh our memories on the whole section, let's read verses 10 through 18 once again. If you're familiar with where Ephesians is at, you are welcome to turn there. If you don't know where it's at or don't have any idea about the Bible whatsoever, it's going to be on the screen behind me for you to follow along. And this is what it says. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with that in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. All right, so our last two pieces of armor here. We covered prayer in another message. I think it was week two, and so we're not going to go back to that today, but we're just going to finish up our helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And so let's look at these two pieces of armor, and first let's talk about the helmet, okay? The Romans had a specially designed helmet for their soldiers to wear, and it was made out of metal. Okay, it was this metal thing, and sometimes they wore plumes and feathers and all kinds of weird stuff on the top of it when they were decorative. That wasn't what they wore into battle, but when they were like marching in parades and stuff like that. But this helmet, uh, basically, it covered them from their eyebrows, came around down to their cheeks, and went down the back of their neck. I mean, it was, it's almost like, if you're a Star Wars fan, the kind of thing Darth Vader wore, except for without the eyes and the mouth covering, mouth covering okay? Very similar to that. And this helmet, of course, um, had sponges glued or fastened to the inside of it. Do you know why there were sponges fastened to the, to the inside of it? Because if you put that thing on your head and then somebody whacked you across the head and there weren't any sponges in there, what would happen? Oh, yeah, you'd have a concussion all the way, right? That thing might knock you out. And uh, that makes me think of another song, but we won't sing that one today. Um, so, um, and so, yeah, and so they, they put this, the, the, the sponges in there to, to protect their head. And like, literally, this helmet was designed to withstand a hit from an enemy's battle axe. And there are all kinds of jokes we could insert here, but we will refrain from that. Um, 
But see, this piece of armor was designed to completely and totally protect the Roman soldier's brain and neck from injury. And in likewise fashion, we are commanded to take up the helmet of salvation and place that on our head to protect our brain and to protect our neck. Um, But this isn't the only place in Scripture that we see the helmet of salvation mentioned. It's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 17. If you were here the week we discussed the breastplate of righteousness, we also went to this verse because it's in there. And I'm going to reread this verse in case you weren't here that week. But it says this, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. All right, so this is also a piece of armor that God wears. And we have to ask ourselves the question once again is, if God is wearing a helmet of salvation, then what is the point? What is the purpose? Why would God need to wear a helmet of salvation in the first place? And here's what I believe about this. The reason I believe that he wears a helmet of salvation is not to protect his his head, but is to define his mission. See, God came to this earth to what? He came to reach mankind with salvation. He's defining his mission. He's saying, I am wearing this helmet for what? As a guarantee for everybody who walks the earth that salvation is utmost. Salvation is the most important thing. This is my mission. This is how I'm going forward to fight and battle for the people of the earth's salvation. Now, Here's the second place where the helmet of salvation appears. The second place is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, and it says this, and this is in the New Testament. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So he includes, Paul wrote this letter too, and he includes the word hope in it. And I think that talking about salvation as God's mission, and Paul using the word hope in there, I think it helps to define and get us to wrap our minds around the purpose and the reason for this. And so you're probably saying to yourself, I still don't get it, I understand. So let's talk about salvation first. What is salvation? It's basically a free gift that God gives to mankind, right? There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to get it. The only way that you can get salvation is by coming to Jesus and accepting the gift that he gave his life on the cross for us. The only way. No other way is possible. But it's hard for people to accept or believe in free stuff, right? So it always seems like when you get free stuff, there's strings attached to it, right? I mean, do you ever find that? Like if somebody says, hey, can I take you to lunch? I'm buying. It means usually one of two things. Either A, they got something they want to tell you and they're hoping that giving you a free lunch will lessen the words that they're going to speak. Or B, (laughs) or B, next time you go out, what's the expectation? You're paying, right? The lunch is never, I remember when, when we were in Boston, I was working at this company, and uh, they were all ordering Chinese for lunch, and um, we didn't have any extra money. I couldn't afford the Chinese, and so I just said, no, no, thank you, and this, this one lady, I think her name was Maria, she kept pressuring me, come on, get the food, get the, I said, I can't, I can't, I can't. Finally, she said, I will pay for it, and I said, well, all right, if you're going to pay for it, then I guess I'll order it. 
So she ordered the food, and I got my lunch. And I assumed that she just wanted to buy my lunch. But that was not the case. She got mad at me because the next few times we ordered lunch in the office, I did not pay for her lunch. Well, I never asked her to pay for my lunch in the first place, okay? She, like, begged me to pay for my lunch. And so finally I just gave in and I bought her a lunch so that the woman would chill out because she got so mad at me. And that's the thing. We think that things really aren't free. And when we look at our salvation, we think the same thing about our salvation. Our salvation is really not free. See, if we really want Jesus to love us, if we really want Jesus to care about us, we have to then become religious people. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, why do we think that? Well, we think we've got to do something to earn our salvation, and that's what religion is really about. It's where we perform tasks to please a God that gets angry at us when we don't perform those tasks. And so to make him happy again, we do everything that we can to obey every single rule and regulation we can follow. We go in, you know, something happens in our life. We're, we're, you know, it's, and I see people do this all the time. You know, something bad happens in their life. The first thing they do is they start thinking, did I sin? Is this a punishment from God? You know, oh, you know what? I didn't pay for that coffee the other day. And so, so God, God is, uh, is doing this uh, to strike me for this, uh, this sin. And it's like, why do we think like that? I mean, it's so crazy. But that's how we think, and so we think that we've got to have this list of rules and regulations that we follow, that we do, that we practice in order to earn God's favor so that God will look down on us and say, wow, your list is super long. You're doing all those things on that super long list. You know what? You're awesome, and because you're awesome and you're doing the list and and you're being all super religious and you're earning that salvation, I'm going to bless you even more. But that's the, th- and that's the thought that we get in our heads. We get caught in a religious trap. We become religious people, and we base our relationship with God on the things that we do and don't do, and then we go and we judge other followers of Jesus' relationship with God based on how well they measure up to our list. And our life becomes a ritual of things that we do, because if we don't do them, God will be mad at us. And then if God gets mad at us, we have to work extra hard, keep the list better so that he'll like us again. If he's mad, he's going to zap us. He's a cruel, harsh taskmaster whose salvation is not free, but in fact costs us a lot. And this is the trap that so many believers fall into in their walk with Jesus. We become more religious And you know what? Satan wants us to become more religious. Why? Because religion is the exact opposite of salvation through faith. See, Jesus came and died so that we didn't have to be religious. Think about the Old Testament laws and the way that they had to live. I mean, they literally had to go through and decide what food they could eat, what food they couldn't eat. What if they accidentally ate something? You know, like they were standing outside and they, they breathed in and they sucked in an unclean bug. All of a sudden they were unholy. Seriously, this is the way it was though. I mean, it sounds funny, but that's the way it was. And Jesus said, you know what? This is not how I designed my people to live. 
I created them to be in a loving relationship with me. And that's what salvation by grace through faith is. And so we put on our helmet of salvation to get the opposite message into our brains. Listen, there is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. You can't be the greatest person that ever lived because that's what Jesus is looking for. There's no hope in religion. Religion leads to chains. Religion leads to fear. Religion leads to hopelessness. But Jesus is the opposite of religion. Jesus leads to hope. Jesus leads us from the the chains. And with Jesus, we no longer have to try harder or do more because he has already done it all for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have to try and do everything within our ability to live the life that God has called us to live. But what's the difference? The difference is this. When we screw up, you don't have an angry God standing up there waiting to hit you with a lightning bolt, punch you in the face, give a family member a terrible disease or something like that. Instead, what you've got is you've got a loving father standing up there and saying, listen, it's okay. The only way this thing is going to beat you is if you stay down there. I need you to stand up and continue to walk forward. Let's keep moving forward. See, that's the difference. God doesn't hold us in a spot and strike us down because of what we've been through. We put on our helmet of salvation and we say, you know what, devil? No matter how many times we fall, as long as I stand back up and I keep moving forward and keep heading towards the prize that which Jesus has called me to, I am okay. I am good. Man, avoid those chains. Don't let your brain tell you that you have to earn your salvation. Because when we do, Jesus said these words, we become twice as much a son of hell. Jesus said those words. Think about that. Religion doesn't save anyone. Only Jesus does. And that's the hope that this helmet brings. And so every day we put on our helmet of salvation to remember that it's only by God through Jesus and his grace and faith that we are saved. And because of that, we have a loving father that we can come to whenever we fall, whenever we stumble, whenever we mess up. He will forgive us, wipe us off, pick us up, and keep moving us forward, not strike us down. Then the last piece of armor that we have here is the sword. There were various swords used by the Roman soldiers in combat. It would be really fun to run through all the different kinds of swords, but we won't do that. And so let's talk about the one that's being referred to in our text. This sword was about 19 inches long, so it was about the size of uh, a normal guy's arm in this area. And uh, the sword was sharpened on both edges, and so it was a double-edged sword. Uh, Sometimes the tip was curled or twisted into a corkscrew, and the reason for that was if you were actually able to penetrate through somebody's skin and you were able to do a little twisting action, you could do some serious damage other than just slicing them open. You could tear up organs and muscles and cause a lot of pain in the person that was unfortunate enough to be on the other end. Well, here's the deal. Jesus has given us a weapon that is as dangerous and as painful as the ones that the Romans carried, and it's the sword of the Spirit. 
And it says there, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, for many of us, the assumption has been made that the Word of God is speaking about the literal Bible, the books and letters of the book of the Bible. And this is somewhat true, but it's not the whole picture of what Paul is trying to paint here because, number one, the Bible that you hold in your hand or that you have on your phone wasn't even in existence when Paul wrote these very words. The Bible is an interesting thing to study, and we make a mistake in calling it a book. It's a collection of books and letters. And so we've got to remember that, that it's a collection, it's put together for our convenience and ease so that we can have all of the things that God has spoken throughout time in one spot, but it's not itself a book on its own. But the word here, when we look at the text and it says the word of God, the word that's used in the uh, original language is the Greek word rhema for word. And the word rhema is only used for a certain type of word. It's used for a word that is spoken in the moment. And there's a great example of this found in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16, we see a conversation between Jesus and Satan. Satan comes to Jesus to get him to fall into sin, and Jesus' response in this situation is actually a rhema word, a word spoken in the moment. And this is what it says. We're going to read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Once again, it'll be on the screen behind me, and it says this. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So if you've ever read this passage, you're thinking to yourself, well, Jesus, what he did there was he... He quoted from different books of the Bible back to Satan, and so I don't get the point you're trying to make here. Yes, he did that. But what we have to understand here is that this word that Jesus was given to speak to the devil in the situation was a specific word for that moment. See, he didn't have time. Jesus didn't have time to stop and say, wait a minute, devil, hold on, hold on. Let me go get my Bible. I'm going to find something in here to counter that word, and then I'll come back at you. Okay, he didn't have time to say, oh, oh, wait, 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 I know that's wrong, Satan, but you know what, I think somewhere in the book of Deuteronomy, it answers this question, give me some Deuteronomy, and I can take care of this. See, it was a section of scripture that Jesus knew, that was in his heart, and it was in his mind. 
So that when Satan came at him, God could give him a word in that moment and in that instant so that when the enemy came slicing with his sword, Jesus had a sword to pull out and go at Satan with it. And um, I don't know why this does this sometimes. And the problem, I hope you can already see in this, is the problem that we have with the sword of the Spirit. Because for most of us in this room, me included, we no longer put the Word of God up here and in here. See, what we do is we say to ourselves, well, I got three Bibles on my bookshelf at home, on my phone, I've got a couple of Bible apps, and so I don't really need to have the Word up here or in here. But see, when we get in a situation where the enemy comes at us and is going to attack us, the only way that God can give us a rhema word, a word in the moment, is if we have something up here and in here in order for him to get to and access it. Satan isn't going to say, Hold on, okay, I'll let you get your phone out, search a few Bible apps, see if you can find something, you know, maybe, you know, oh, you got your Bible, okay, yeah, just go get your Bible, page through some pages. He's not going to do that. He's going to see an opportunity, and he's going to come at you hard, and he's going to try and cut you, and we've got to be able to have those words on the inside of us that God can access and speak in the moment so that when we go and fight, we are ready for the battle and ready for whatever it is that Satan throws at us. So the word of God has to become not just something that we carry in our pocket, but a part of who we are. And I know this is cruel to do on a Sunday, but let's think about Chick-fil-A for a minute. Okay? It's the chicken sandwich that Jesus eats. <laughs> I guess one way we can become more like Jesus is eat at Chick-fil-A, huh? <laughs> wow, I'm getting some applause on that one. That's, uh, that's good stuff. All right. Uh, some of you are thinking to yourself, well, that place is nasty. The only, ways, the only way I can respond is you're not a Christian and you're probably going to hell. All right. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. That was just a joke. All right. But when you walk into Chick-fil-A and you step up to the counter and you order yourself a spicy chicken deluxe with pepper jack cheese on it, I love that sandwich, and they cook it, and they hand it to you, and you say thank you. What do they say back to you at Chick-fil-A? My pleasure. Whatever you say to them, they say my pleasure. I gotta be honest with you. I try and get them to say other things, okay? I have even said, when they handed it to me, I've said, my pleasure, just to see if it'll mess them up. And they answer with, my pleasure. Okay, you, listen, if you have gotten, if you've been able to trip up the people at Chick-fil-A, text me later, let me know what you did, because I want to use it next time I go to Chick-fil-A. Why are they so good at responding with, my pleasure? Because it's become a part of who they are, right? I picture Chick-fil-A employees when they're at home and somebody says thank you, they say my pleasure because it's just so ingrained in their head. 
See, the word of God has to become a part of who we are, like my pleasure is to a Chick-fil-A employee. See, we need it in our heart, and we need it in our mind, so that when the enemy comes at us with his sword and tries to take a slice at us, like Jesus did in the text that we just read, we can defend ourselves and slice at Satan, even launch an attack against him. See, we have to move past the idea that spending three minutes a day reading God's word is going to prepare us for the spiritual battle. See, the enemy fights dirty. He doesn't play by any sort of rules. And think about the men and women who serve our country in the military. Do they spend like three minutes a day training on their weapons in hopes that they're going to be ready when they step out into the battlefield to fight? No way. They spend hours and hours every single week training and knowing exactly what they're supposed to do just in case the fight comes. Here's the deal. The fight has come to us, and we have to be prepared. We have to be ready. We have to have God's word in us and a part of who we are so that when we step out onto the battlefield and we get into the fight, we have this weapon ready at our disposal. And so, some of you may be thinking, are you saying we should memorize the Bible? Yes. But I'm not good at memorizing things. Your life depends on it, okay? This, it's, it's, what's so funny about us as people is that there's so many things that we can't do, but if we were about to die, suddenly we could do those things, right? Or we at least try to do them. God's word, it's our weapon. We're in a battle. We're not even training and preparing for one. We are literally in a battle. Let's take up the sword of the spirit. Let's get the word in here. And listen, you don't have to memorize it exactly. As long as you've got the basic idea, you know, it's not like Satan's, you're gonna, you're gonna quote something and you're gonna miss a couple of words and Satan's gonna go, yeah, you screwed up a couple of words. Sorry, that didn't work there. No, as long as you've got it, as long as you've got the gist, as long as you've got the idea, as long as you know that the words you are speaking are God's word, it's a sword and it's going to combat anything that he can bring against you. And so this morning, in our final message, we're putting on our helmet of salvation, we're taking up the sword of the Spirit. And so that's our challenge. I mean, we've been going through these soaps. We've got one more week left in our, in our soap challenge, and I hope you're spending the time in the, in the Bible and doing those soaps so that you're getting some of that word in you so that your sword is, is, is prepared in battle. And God, I hope that you know that your salvation is not dependent upon how you work, but it's only dependent on Jesus. And as we clothe ourselves with that helmet and we take up that sword, we put on all of this armor that God has given us to fight in the battle, as we step out into the warfare that we're experiencing each and every single day, we're gonna be able to fight. We're gonna be able to stand strong. We're not gonna fall in the battle. And that's my heart, that's my passion. That's why we spent seven weeks on this is because I want our church to be a church that stands up that stands strong, that steps out onto that battlefield and fights and fights hard and takes the enemy down because the enemy really needs to go down in this area. I know we think that, well, we live in the Bible Belt. 
So, I mean, the enemy isn't really attacking hard here. Yes, yes he is. Doesn't matter how many churches we have in our community. Doesn't matter how many Christians we have living around us. There is still more people who don't know Jesus in Mulberry that do. And it's a war and it's a battle that we got to fight. Thank you for joining us on the FAM Church podcast. FAM Church is here to connect people to Christ. If you live in or are visiting the Lakeland, Florida area, we would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You can also check us out online at myfamchurch.com. Thank you again and have an amazing day.